Well, hello, church. So nice to be up here this morning. And I'm going to put this here, too. Stay. Um, before we get into the message, I just want to spend a little bit in prayer. What I love this morning, well, I love the song that we just sang, and I think you'll see that it leads right into the sermon perfectly. But I also love that each person that was up here prayed. Uh, Lisa Unger prayed, Lisa Stephen prayed, Heather brought a scripture, and I just think prayer is like the lifeblood of the church, really. So I'm going to open in prayer, and then we'll get to the message. Heavenly Father, what wonderful words to that song. The death of Jesus bought us redemption and salvation. Just last week, we celebrated your glorious resurrection the new life that you entered into so that we too could be born into new life. And the mighty power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us through your Holy Spirit. That is a gift that we can barely understand, that we are born again by grace and grace alone. I want to pray this morning for my brothers and sisters who may be suffering illness, whether it's physical illness or emotional illness or mental illness. I think that many of our struggles are in silence and we don't want to share them with one another. And I pray today on behalf of my whole body here, this body of Christ, that you will meet the needs of those members who especially need a healing touch from you this morning. I also, uh, like has already been prayed, want to thank you for the many blessings that you have given us individually, but also more specifically as a church body. You are a loving Father, and you are a good God. And when we see, we can, when we really look, we can see the good gifts that you give us time and time again. Would you give us a clearer vision to see the many ways that you are providing protecting, directing, and loving us. I want to pray for Pastor David, who is on sabbatical for the next six weeks, as he takes this time to dedicate himself to study and to listen to your spirit. Would you honor that and be with him as he listens and prepares for uh, summer and uh, for the fall sermon series? And last, I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would continue to speak to us through the preaching of the word. I ask that people would hear just exactly what you need them to hear from you this morning. Not an intellectual assent or a nod to theological accuracy, Lord, but that our hearts would be changed. We pray this in the powerful, amazing name of Jesus. Amen. So, I have the opportunity to preach the first sermon in the new series that we're going to be looking at over the next 10 to 12 weeks. Uh, we are going to be looking at the book of Galatians. And I have to tell you, I am very excited about this. Not just preaching this morning, but the whole, the whole series. So this morning, I'm going to give you a historical background, sort of a broad overarching sweep of the book, its theological setting, and the message that I believe is as important and timely today as it was when Paul first wrote it 2,000 years ago. I'm also going to be looking at the first section of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. So the image that's up on the screen there that I chose actually has a profound meaning, and I hope you'll think of this whenever you see the picture. So eating together 
Eating at table was a really big deal in first century culture. It was a sign of honor to be invited to eat with someone, and it would honor you when those you invited would come. It was an honor you would reciprocate. And in this shame-honor culture, you made sure you invited the people who were most going to benefit your cred, right? So social media style, you want to put up images or be known for the person who invited the coolest people over. And then in turn, you could expect them to invite you over and so you get honor again. And so you didn't want to invite, um, you know, in first century culture, you didn't want to invite the Samaritan over. They didn't give you any honor. They didn't give you any street cred. You wanted to invite the rich, the powerful, the mighty, and they would, you know, boost your social standing. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he ate with everyone. And that was uh, one of the things that he was criticized for by the religious leaders. He would eat with Pharisees and the rich and powerful. He would eat with tax collectors. He would eat with sinners and prostitutes. And you know, that is a beautiful sign of the kingdom that was to come. We see here in this image different genders, ethnicities, ages, all sitting together at one big dinner party. Now that the letter to Galatians is almost 2,000 years old, set in a culture and a time so radically different from ours. And as we study Galatians, we're going to need to do our best to put our first century thinking cap on and try to understand what Paul was saying to his people in his time. And then maybe we can get a glimpse of what God is saying to us today through his word. So the letter to the Galatian church was written by the Apostle Paul, once a devout Pharisee, steadfast defender of Jewish law, persecutor of Christians. And after an encounter with the risen Jesus, Paul is now a church-planting Christian missionary to the Gentiles. Paul traveled all over the Roman, the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, planting churches, and he continued to supervise those churches through his letters. So the letter to the church in the province of Galatia is one of those. And I got a map up on the screen for you. So there's four, took, Paul took four missionary journeys. You can see them in different colors there. And um, the first three missionary journeys, uh, he visited the province of Galatia. And it's kind of in the upper right-hand corner there. It says Galatia and Cappadocia. And um, he visited four of the cities in Galatia on the first three of his missionary journeys. The cities of Antioch of Pisidia, which is the Antioch up top, and Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Most people agree, most scholars agree, that the letter was written by Paul around 50 AD, so only 15 or 20 years after the death of Jesus. So as I said, Paul visited these churches, planted them, and then stayed in touch with them via letters. And he writes the letter of Galatians with some urgency because he is shocked at what he hears happening there. The believers in Galatia are being persuaded by other teachers to add Jewish practices back into the gospel that Paul has taught them. We're going to call these false teachers Judaizers because they were Jewish Christians who yet were bringing Judaist practices back in. 
These Judaizers tell the Galatians that Paul doesn't really have the authority of an apostle and that Paul really doesn't understand the gospel correctly anyway. So here's a great illustration that one of the theologians I read gave, and I want to share it with you. So imagine you're in South Africa, the height of apartheid in 1970, and you are embarked on a risky project. You want to build a community center where everyone is equally welcome, whether you're white or black, no matter what color or race. So you've designed it, you've laid out the drawings, and you've set the foundation in such a way that you think there's only one way you can build this building, you know, or so you think. So you're called away urgently, and a little while you get a letter. A new group of builders are building on your foundation, and they've changed the design, and they've installed two meeting rooms with two separate doors, one for the whites and one for the blacks. And you know, some of the locals are relieved because they thought this was a very dangerous idea anyway. Lots of trouble putting people together in one room like that. But others, though, asked the builders why the original idea wouldn't do. Oh, say the builders, you know, that guy, he didn't really have permission to make the building that way, and he got the designs muddled up. He's not actually like an architect. He didn't really know what he was doing. But don't worry, we have permission, and we are the official architects, right? So that is kind of what Paul was facing. And in this letter to the Galatians, he addresses these two accusations. He doesn't have the authority, and he doesn't understand the gospel. So first, Paul claims his authority. In the early church, the word apostle became synonymous for the original people chosen and given authority to teach by Jesus himself. So here in Galatians, the Judaizer's accusation is that Paul had not been chosen by Christ, but had instead gained his authority secondhand from other people. So Paul comes out swinging in chapter 1, verse 1, and he goes right through to chapter 2, and we are going to look at that in a minute. And two, Paul defends his gospel, what he say would be the true gospel. The second accusation against him was that the gospel that he preached wasn't complete. It wasn't sufficient for true righteousness. He was accused of soft-peddling the true gospel in order to make the Gentiles happy. And Paul also addresses this accusation right away in chapter 1. So now with this background, hopefully a little bit more understanding, let's read the passage for today. By the way, I'm reading a couple of our passages in the New International Version, but I'm also going to be using the New Living Translation as well. So Galatians 1, 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not sent by men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, 
Let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul starts the letter the way that he normally does, in that he identifies himself and his audience. He sends grace and peace through Jesus Christ, his brothers and sisters. But from verse 1 on, this passage is strongly worded and very tersely to the point. As one commentator said, it sounds like he's trying to say a bunch of things all at once and all of them sharply. Literally in his first breath, Paul reminds his readers that he fits the early church definition of apostle. He was chosen and sent by Christ himself, not by a man, nor by a group of men. Now Paul is referring here to his call uh, and his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. We have that story in the book of Acts chapter nine. Paul's name at the time was Saul. He changed it after his conversion. And I'd like to read that story. So meanwhile, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if they found any there who belonged to the way, the way was what they called uh, the people who followed Jesus, the way of Christ, which I like, actually. Uh, So that if he found any who belonged to the way, Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The Lord makes it clear to Paul in verse 15 that he is God's chosen instrument to proclaim Christ's name to the Gentiles. So we see it is Christ himself who has given Paul the mission and the authority to teach. So that answers the first accusation. The second is, what is the true gospel? So Paul alludes to this in Galatians 1.6 when he says the Galatians are deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. He'll make it clearer as the letter unfolds that the true gospel is that it is the grace of the cross of Christ alone that can save. Right away, Paul's making it clear. He is sent by Christ himself and he preaches the true gospel. So who are all these other people throwing the Galatians into confusion, perverting the true message of grace? There's only one gospel, He says, you've already heard it from me, and anyone who tells you differently is selling something. Oh, no, not a nice quote from the Princess Bride. He says right there that anyone who teaches anything different from the true gospel, no matter who it is, Paul himself or an angel of heaven, let them be under God's curse. Paul says it twice to make sure that they get the point. So when you heard that, did you go, wow, That is intense, like under God's curse. 
Yeah, that language is just so foreign to our modern ears. It just sounds tough. And you know, even after I try to explain it to you, you're probably going to be like, yeah, I just don't know. But I'm going to give it a try. So here it is. The word curse is a translation of the Greek word anathema, which in and of itself is a rendering for the Hebrew word harem. And the word harem in the Old Testament, the Jews used that word to refer to something that was set apart for sacrificial offering. So basically destined for death or destruction under God's holy judgment. Uh, a sacrificial lamb brought to the temple that's going to be killed for you know your sins as a sacrifice was harem. It was set apart um, for destruction or for death. So in the New Testament, Paul uses this word five times in his letters to the churches, once in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, two here in Galatians. And he refers to someone cut off from Christ and under the judgment of God. And eventually the early church over the years came to use that word, uh, anathema, as um, a way of saying that people had been excommunicated or cut off from the church. So if you were anathema, you had been cut off from the fellowship of the body of believers. I don't know if any of you ever heard the word anathema used in the modern setting, has been, you are anathema to me, right? You are, you are shunned, you are cut off, you are, you are dead to me. And that's the word that Paul's using here. And he, he's saying the Judaizers are under God's judgment or cut off from, maybe cut off from the fellowship of the church. It could be both. You see, for Paul, the conflict between the true gospel and what the Judaizers are teaching is a life and death struggle. Why? Well, because the false teachers are leading these young believers away from the saving life of the grace of Christ and leading them into the way of death. Paul explains later in chapter 3, verse 10, that those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. So Paul isn't calling down fire from heaven because these people are disagreeing with him. He's saying the teachings of these Judaizers nullify God's redemptive act and bring them under judgment. We'll get to that in a bit. Don't you love, I just love, how God chose this expert in the Jewish law to be the one to fight for freedom from the law for these Gentiles. That is just such a God thing. I think Paul was probably the only one that understood the law so thoroughly he could say, no, you don't need that anymore. So after the cursing bit, Paul goes on in verse 10 to rather ironically add, so do you still think I'm trying to make people happy? Do you still think I'm trying to like tickle your ears? No, no, to be a servant of Christ is to preach the truth, no matter what anyone wants to hear. And as a matter of fact, in chapter six, Paul will later say that it's the Judaizers who are actually trying to please people to avoid being persecuted for teaching the full meaning of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's motivation in this letter, though, isn't simply to defend his authority or his teaching. 
These very strong opening arguments are a foundation for the main purpose of this letter, to ensure the Galatian church understands the true gospel and two essential truths. The gospel brings this, that we are made free and that we are made one, one new people of God. I want to dig into that a little deeper. So first, Paul tells the Galatian church that through Jesus Christ, they are made free from the law. Now, he spends a lot of time on this, quite a few chapters, so you're going to be hearing this unpacked more in the coming weeks. But the word, the law, it's a shorthand to refer to the guiding rules, principles, systems of sacrifice, and ways of living that identified the Jewish people as children of God and aligned them with God's will for them. So following the law was to obey God and to show the nations around them that they were, the Jews were God's holy, set-apart people. And there are some key physical manifestations of this set-apartness. They were to eat kosher food, prepared a certain way. They worshipped and sacrificed at the temple. And that all the males, Jewish males, were circumcised. So the Judaizers, the false teachers, were telling the Gentile Christians in Galatia that they still needed one of those identity markers in order to be truly acceptable or set apart for God. They needed, the males needed to be circumcised. They weren't even asking them to obey the whole law, just that one section of law, which was a hypocrisy that Paul also addresses later. So essentially, the Judaizers are saying, yeah, faith in the grace and the cross of Christ is, you know, it's great and all, but Christ plus circumcision equals right standing with God. And Paul is saying, no, grace plus nothing equals acceptance with God. Actually, grace plus anything cancels out grace. There's no adding anything in. It's only the new way of grace. So my family and I, we usually spend family day weekend up at my mom's place in the Caribou. And there's lots of snow and the lake is frozen. And so we can go sledding, we can uh, play around in the snow, we can go ice skating. And one year it was really windy. So when we got up there, the wind had blown all the snow off the lake and it was frozen clear and smooth. And we could have skated across the entire lake if we wanted to. It was fantastic. And also, in the dead of winter, the lake is frozen solid enough that you can drive your truck onto the lake and you can go ice fishing. And as a matter of fact, we did that this year. We drove our truck onto the lake. We didn't go ice fishing, but we drove around the whole lake exploring things that we don't usually do by boat. As a matter of fact, it was so cold and so frozen, we saw like groups of trucks, like circles of trucks, all, you know, with augered ice holes fishing together. That's how solid the ice was. But as the weather warms and spring comes, yeah, the locals know they need to stop driving on the lake. The truck, once a great way to catch fish on the lake, actually becomes very dangerous. No one there thinks it's a great idea to drive their truck on thin ice. Actually, they think that's a terrible idea. So when the ice clears, they park the truck for ice fishing and they bring out the boat and they fish on their fishing boat instead. 
So Paul's saying here that spring has come and it's here to stay. And the old ways of winter don't work anymore. Trying to follow the law is like trying to drive a truck onto the lake in the summer to go fishing. The Judaizers are saying, well, you know, maybe we could use the truck and the boat together. And Paul's saying, yeah, no, it doesn't work like that. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the coming of new life, the warmth of spring, the melting of the ice. The old ways of identifying as God's chosen people are gone. Jesus has completely fulfilled Israel's calling, its role, its mission, and now to be God's chosen people, the true Israel, is to be in Jesus, to be in the grace of the Messiah. The identity of being God's chosen people isn't found in circumcision or kosher laws or the temple. It is by being found in Christ. Paul would have loved the song that we just sang before I came up here. I will stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace, grace alone. This is also what makes Paul so angry. The Judaizers were refusing to eat together with their Gentile brothers and sisters because of this false teaching. They were dividing the church, this one body, over obsolete identity markers. And even some of the leaders like the Apostle Peter were going along with it. Paul says that our new identity in Christ means that we are one unified people of God. We are not identified by our gender, our ethnicity, our religious backgrounds, our social status. Galatians 3:28 says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So don't try to pull that old truck onto the lake behind your fishing boat. I guarantee you will drown under the curse of the law. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. So keep standing firm and do not get burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Secondly, Paul tells the Galatian church, Christ's death on the cross has bought them freedom from their sin nature. In Galatians 5.13, he makes a mirror statement to Galatians 5.1, which turns the focus from the law to our sin nature. He says here, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Paul goes on in chapter 6 to remind the Galatians that they are able to live in this new freedom, life through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, and a life like this bears the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Instead of living in obedience to the law, as the new people of God, they have a new master, the Spirit of Christ. The goal of this freedom life is also summarized in verse 13. The Galatians are to use their Holy Spirit freedom to serve one another in love. 
In verse 14, this expert, Paul, the expert in the Jewish law, says the whole law can actually be summed up in this one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like something Jesus said, doesn't it? The Spirit enables the Galatians to humbly, gently live a life of self-sacrificing reciprocal love. As a matter of fact, Paul says the new law for God's new people is to care for one another. Galatians 6.2 says, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. And then Paul goes on in chapter 6 to give the Galatians some specific examples of how to do so in their own context. So what does that mean for us? ERBF on a Sunday morning in Coquitlam, 2,000 years in the future. Well, I think we can get a glimpse of this through Paul's final thoughts. In the end, Paul summarizes his letter in a wonderful statement. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is that we have been transformed into a new creation. Not, by the way, new creations. He's not talking about them individually. A new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. Paul is reminding his listeners Faith in the cross of Christ, the true gospel of salvation by grace, has made and has made you one, one people. So I am a very visual person. You will have seen lots of slides up there today. And I have one more for you that I think sums things up pretty well for us. The true gospel is that the cross of Christ alone can save You know, to be honest, we like the law, we like our rules, we like our identity markers, and we have them in our Christian churches, in spite of what we might think. We think that things can set us apart or make us more acceptable to God. But those things become heavy burdens, trucks that drag us to the bottom of the lake. And when we surrender those to Jesus, Those things are nailed to the cross, and we are no longer their slaves. We are made free. We live under grace now. We are children of promise, not slavery. We are made right with God through the grace of Christ alone, and this grace brings unity to all believers. And this freedom is so that we can live together and serve each other in love. We're also trapped by the disordered desires that just come with being born in this world. This sinful nature, when we surrender to Christ, is also nailed to the cross, and we are no longer slaves to our hunger, our addictions, our passions. We are made free. We live through the Holy Spirit now. The Spirit orders our desires and brings us everlasting life. The Spirit helps us grow the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, so that we can serve each other in love. We are a new creation, a new people, living in the grace of Christ 
under the reign of the Holy Spirit. So here are some questions that I would love us to ponder and think about and bring individually to God. So what might God be saying to you about where you are right now? Do you have something that needs to be nailed to the cross? Do you need to be made free? Maybe you don't know Jesus. You haven't met this wonderful son of God who loves you and gave his life for you so you could be free. You can give him your life right now. You can just, you can just say, Lord, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Please give me your spirit and help me to live in you. Amen. And then come and talk to me or talk to Yosef or to the prayer team after, and we would love to pray with you and welcome you into God's new one people. Maybe you know Jesus and you follow him. Is the Spirit speaking to you about something in your life that you have held back, that you are unwilling to have crucified with Christ? Maybe you're falling into the trap of thinking there are things that you can do for Jesus that make you more acceptable to God. Are you unwilling to surrender habits or behaviors that you know grieve the Holy Spirit? Perhaps God is speaking to you about what you do with your freedom. Are you serving the people of God in love? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Do you have a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ that needs to be made right? Or maybe it's something else. You alone know what God is saying to you. And I'd like to give you a few minutes to really hear directly from God. It's going to be quiet in here. I have not asked the worship team to come up and play a song. It is going to be silent. And so if that's not something you normally do and you feel uncomfortable, that is okay. Just try to quiet your body, quiet your restless thoughts, and listen and wait. Sometimes God speaks by bringing up a random thought, which isn't actually random. Sometimes he brings a Bible verse or a snippet of a song or an image of a person or an event. You might not know if you've heard anything from God at all, but your stillness and your willingness to listen to him is very precious, and he will be faithful to you in a way that makes sense to you. And after a minute or two of this silence, I will close off this time in prayer. I'm going to ask Dave to put this question that I asked on the slide, just in case it may help, but don't let it distract you. Uh, listen to your loving God. Let's spend a moment in silence. I love that. 
I love that we sing. I know some people go, why do we sing so many songs? Because we get to sing what we believe. We get to sing our theology. We get to respond from our heart to what God might be saying from our heads. And I love that reminder that God is faithful and he makes a way and that we've seen it, right? We got to hear the testimonies last week about how God made a way, how God was faithful. And I'm really looking forward to hearing all the other testimonies that might come forward over the next year uh, from you about how God was faithful to you and how God made a way for you. I invite you, if you have prayer concerns or praises, um, we have a prayer team here that would be love to pray with you. If you gave your life to Jesus this morning, you can absolutely come talk to them or me or Yosef. We'd love to hear from you. And, uh, and I just invite you to stay and have coffee with your brothers and sisters on the foyer if you can and to um, talk a little bit about what God is doing in your life what you need, what you have praise for, and get a chance to um, yeah, hang out with each other. May God continue to do the good work in you that he has already started and that he's promised he will bring to completion. God bless you. May be dismissed. <laughs>